It's not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God uh, continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against God and Moses. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is God's word. You may be seated. Um, Briefly, now's a good time if you've got kids and you want to take them back to the kids' room. Also, I uh, just wanted to give a a brief little update of that, which those of you who are already here already know. And that's that we, we did update kind of COVID policies and such. And we're just kind of trying to stick with what the, the CDC and other such groups are saying that we are going to recommend um, masks if you're not vaccinated. If you are vaccinated, they're optional, um, but you're also welcome to wear them. And uh, it's, it's not an issue. We're not going to make it a big deal around here if you want to continue to wear them uh, as long as you want. So there you go. That's what we're doing. Um, I am going to pray now and, uh, and jump into this. As I said, we're in a, we're in a series called Set Apart. Um, and or a, a year's theme called Set Apart. The series we're in for the summer is called Diverse Disciples. And this is kind of a, us looking at the disciples of Jesus and the early uh, disciples after them, like Stephen today, and asking what would it have been like to walk with Jesus together? And, and our assumption is it would have been complicated. Uh, these people are very different from one another and that it really takes kind of a unique uh, amount of, of conviction to following Jesus to do something like that together. So let's pray and we'll jump in. Father in heaven, thank you for the chance to be here with these people. Uh, I believe that you have brought this church together yourself, um, that you have brought us into each other's lives through, through various ways. Some of us were invited here by a friend. Some of us been around a long time. Some of us may have wandered in today. And I, I know that you are at work in our lives and that you really deeply care about where your people follow you and with whom they follow you. And I pray that we would care about that as well, that we would be um, a unique community and that we would be committed to following you with whoever you want us to follow you with, um, as opposed to the going way of looking for our favorite church. So help us to do that and uh, help us to be a light in the world by doing things like that, and by pointing to your grace, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Stephen, um, I've got to give you a little background on him. Uh, this, was, uh, this was part of it. I, I truly, you know, in true Andy fashion, wanted to read Acts 7. 
Uh, and that, if you've looked at it, is extremely long. And uh, we would have had the record-breaking reading of the day. I almost called Julia to have asked her to do it, you know, just to break her previous record of six minutes and 30 seconds or whatever it was. Um, but Acts 7 is, is long. So you're just going to have to maybe look at it later. I, I threw it out there on our members' Facebook page in an audio format to encourage you to listen to it, just because there's, there's a lot there. But that is uh, Stephen's speech before this council. But Stephen uh, is one of those disciples who he was around during the, the life of Christ, you, you can definitely assume. And he was very prominent starting early in the early church. He was a Greek-speaking Jew, uh, probably a convert to Christianity that had a lot of knowledge, but he was also connected to kind of this Greek culture. Uh, he's clearly a very articulate um, person when you read his speech. You're pretty blown away by the amount of information he knows. Uh, we don't know if his speech was maybe prepared. I would, I want to think it was because otherwise he's just on this plane that I don't understand of the type of person that can stitch together all of redemptive history just, you know, at the drop of a hat. But he, he does things in his speech like he synthesizes data. And, and people have pointed at some things in the speech and they've said, oh, this is inaccurate. But the deeper you look at it, it kind of looks like it actually means that he took data and synthesized it in a very easy way to get to his point, which, if you think about it, takes more skill to do. Um, it's kind of more complicated than just spewing out all the exact ideas. Like, he knew how to put it together to kind of paint the whole picture he was trying to paint. And what he was trying to paint was this history of the Jewish people and how God had brought them all the way from the days of Abraham and through the wilderness and into the temple and the tabernacle. And he's showing how things had changed along the way, um, how things had not, not just been random, but they'd been a progress, a progressive revelation, as theologians call it, where things were unpacking, growing, moving toward a fulfillment. And he's showing that within his speech. And then at the end, he, he kind of levels a very heavy criticism that in Israel's past, people had been resistant to the direction that God was taking them and had been stiff-necked. And he was saying essentially to those listening to him that they were committing the sins of their, of their forefathers. And uh, we think he didn't get to finish his speech because he was, he was interrupted. And as we know, he was stoned. So he, speak, he was speaking this in defense before this council that we read about. And uh, and he, would, he was martyred. And after, or as he is being martyred, he, he prays, uh, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And so there's a lot, there's a lot there with this person. And, um, and I want to I wanna get into a few things. First of all, just a quick cultural side note. Uh, Nick Davis and I were actually prompted by another pastor to kind of, you know, how, how are we going to address the idea of kind of some of the anti-Semitic stuff that happened here in our city recently. And so just as a quick cultural side note, um, I think Stephen has something to teach us here. And so Stephen shows us something like Judaism can be critiqued. That's what he's doing. Um, he is very purposely critiquing a religion. You know, he's not kind of saying, hey, don't ever, don't ever talk about that. I mean, he is actively critiquing a religion. But his posture is not that of hate. His words are very clear. Lord, do not hold 
this sin against them. He calls them to repentance. He speaks very clearly. He's articulate about the Christian faith and its differences, but he has a very gracious heart and orientation toward these people. And I think that's a a balance that often gets missed. Um, Christians, of course, believe that the Jewish religion has missed the promised Messiah. Uh, That's true. And Christians, I believe, can and should oppose wrongdoing in a nation, even the Jewish nation today, as Stephen did in the past, of all injustices um, in general, no matter the nation, but I don't think that leaves the Jewish nation beyond critique um, because the Jewish nation was called to prioritize justice and mercy and humility even over its temple rituals. I want to read Micah 6, 6 to 8. This is a familiar scripture, but this is an indictment of God against the Jewish nation, his people. And at one point he says, and he's kind of speaking on the people's behalf here, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old with the the temple rituals? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then here's God's words. He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And so the prophets critiqued the nation. Stephen critiqued the religion and the the rejection of Christ. And while all this is true, and, and I would say Christians are not scripturally mandated to just be like supporters of Israel, no matter what, or anybody. But Stephen shows us a posture toward people, especially this people that were called to image him before the nations, that would be expanded to include us, a posture of boldness and mercy, calling them to repent and believe while praying, do not hold this sin against them. So there's no place for what we've seen in our, in our city lately. And this is our neighborhood. This is my neighborhood, one of the synagogues where rocks are thrown through the windows and Another one here in town, anti-Semitic slurs were painted on the walls. There's there's nothing Christian about that, no matter how much you might disagree. So let Stephen show us the way. Understand the direction is pointing. Understand it deeply. Learn to speak about it clearly with conviction. But when you call people to see and believe it, do so with a posture of do not hold this sin against them, not ever with hate. So... There's that side note for you to open up. I think we need to, need to talk about those kind of things. But Stephen was called into a really unique role, the role of the deacon. And I remember a long time ago in a church that I was a part of, I, uh, I had my first experience of being recommended to the deacons for help. And what I'd done is I was going through some hard stuff in life, and I was also in the middle of a, of a project in my house, and I'd gotten in way over my head, And uh, somebody heard that I was kind of flailing and I didn't have a sink and stuff like that. And so the deacons showed up and they helped me. And I I legitimately had this idea. This is the first church I was ever at with deacons. And I thought of like the hats and certain traditions. Like, and I thought of kind of a group of disconnected people. And what I got was this group of people that they just showed up and they helped me. 
They just helped me work on my own house for a couple days, right? And, and I, I remember writing them a letter, and I was like, this is the first time I've ever understood really what a deacon looks like. Thank you so much. And it, what, it, what it means, the word just means servant. It just means servant. Um, Stephen, when, these, uh, when he was first ordained to be a deacon, as we might call it, it was, as we read in that scripture, just because the Greek widows, and these are probably elderly widows, were getting neglected, and so they weren't getting as much food um, as, the, as the Hebrew widows. So the apostles, who were trying to stay focused on prayer and the word, you know, said, we, we need help. We need some other leaders to do this. So Stephen, who's clearly very capable, he's a gifted speaker and he's very wise, is called by the church um, to be a servant, to take food to people. And then he dies like immediately. Um, he was this bright star that was only around for a minute. It reminded me for some reason of, you know, pandemic, a bunch of people watch Contagion. I don't know about you, but you watch Contagion, you're like, oh, Gwyneth Paltrow's in this movie. And it's like, oh, she died. Oh, like five minutes in, she's dead. And that's what it would be like, I think, to read the book of Acts with kind of just clear eyes. You're like, whoa, this guy is clearly amazing. Oh, he died. He's done. And it's, incre- it's incredible how fast he shows up and is gone in the Bible. But the other thing that's incredible is you see when Luke writes about him that Luke clearly sees Christ in him. He makes very direct parallels between Stephen and Jesus, and he gives him a lot of space for how short his ministry was. So what do we learn from this very gifted person who's given the lowest title and one of the humblest jobs? Um, as we follow Jesus together. I'm going to suggest a few things. I've realized I've totally fallen into the three-point guy. I never thought I'd do this. I just keep coming up with three things. I don't know. Maybe it's a rut. Maybe I'm just, trying, I'm just not being as creative anymore. But I've got three ideas. I think we learn a key pattern for leading under Jesus in Stephen, so a pattern, an important paradigm to keep in mind when we think of doing ministry, so a pattern and a paradigm, and and I think this all points to Jesus. So we get a, a pattern, a paradigm, and a pointer. And look at that. Not only three things, but they're all Ps. It's kind of, what have I become? What have I become? Anyway, pattern, servanthood. Stephen's the lead deacon. Um, and that means servant, as I already told you. So servants, if you're going with the, the kind of ancient conception of the servant, this is somebody who... Um, they might be working toward you know, their own life, but at this time, they don't own anything of their own. They don't pursue their own goals. Their lives are considered you know, mostly to be for the care and the comfort of others. And that was, that was the understanding. So when, you, when they named an office of the church you know, a servant, that's, that's kind of what they were saying. Like that's what, you, that's what your role is. But servanthood, of course, is everyone's pattern as Christians. The disciples viewed themselves as serving too, and they learned that from Jesus. As we read earlier in the service, Jesus taught them and us that the greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So all the disciples, Jesus, of course, had said, I come washing your feet, right? You're going to be the type of people that wash each other's feet. And a long time ago, we talked about here how 
That doesn't mean just have a foot washing service. That's like, think of the lowliest possible role that you could come up with. The one that I presented here a long time ago, right, was who, you know, I don't know, the toilet cleaner. It's something like that. Like, the greatest among you will clean the toilet. Um, not, of course, not everyone's going to clean the toilet, but it's, it's this idea that if you want to be great, get low. I mean, that's really, that's really what Jesus taught all of us. Everything we do is supposed to take that posture. We preach to serve. We do missions to serve. We work to serve. You get married to serve. All those things. The fact that this office uh, or role of deacon is called servant is probably just because they literally were serving food. That's probably the only reason they called it that. They, they knew everybody was supposed to serve. These people actually just carried food, they, so they called it what it was in a way, in a, a word that the community understood. But that doesn't change the fact that Christ's followers are always called to think, what would it look like for me to be serving? And for any of us, I mean, this especially happens, right? Like when, we, when you start to get into, you come in for counseling or something like that, and you start realizing the idea that I'm going to live my life for somebody else, even take the closest person to you, your kid, your spouse, this is not easy stuff to do. This goes against everything within us. Every single tendency of ours is like we're only really aware of our needs mostly, right? And it's, it is hard to do. So why is that our call? Why is that our calling from Christ? I believe it's because servanthood speaks and teaches us of the greatest principle of God's kingdom, of grace. And grace is, is beautiful. It is sweet, but it doesn't always come easy, and it is not simple. Grace is always possible, though, because Jesus didn't live as if he was equal with God, even though he was. But he took upon himself the form of a suffering servant, even to the point of dying for people like us. So in Stephen's trial and confession, when I say he was portrayed as Christ-like, you see him, he, he had spoken about how Jesus was going to do away with these certain elements of the law and things like that. These are things that Jesus was accused of. Um, he, he says he's accused of similar things. His dying prayer is for forgiveness. And there's no accident that this first martyr who's given all this space in Acts is being shown to us as kind of the prototypical disciple because of his Christ-likeness, right? Because he took on the posture of a servant, the role of a servant, and even he died serving, saying, Father, forgive them. So we have a pattern of Christian living given by Jesus to all disciples then and now, and it's servanthood. And now I want to give a clarification because servanthood is not being a doormat. And we see that really clearly in Stephen. He was not a doormat at all. Stephen is standing up and speaking with boldness, right? And so servanthood, true servanthood, requires considering what someone really needs as opposed to what they want. So to serve Jesus, the church as a whole, this council that he stood before um, that had rejected Jesus, Stephen told them the story of God's work in the world, and he proclaimed that Christ was what they needed even though they'd rejected him, and he had a desire that God would open their eyes, convict them of sin, and not hold the sin against them. And he was no doormat, which is why they killed him. He wasn't asking, though, how do I stand up for myself? 
How do I stand up for me and my views? He was asking, what do they need the most? No matter what, it costs me out of a heart that desired their salvation. So we have a pattern of servanthood. It is not being a doormat. It's not necessarily saying what people want to hear, but it's having a Godward orientation and therefore an orientation toward other people. And Jesus, by the way, always tied those two together. It's not really an either or. And he also, and I think this is kind of clear in the Bible and it's a temptation. I don't think we, we get to go, you know what? I would serve them if they served me, right? This is, if we get back to marriage, there's a, a famous book, uh, Love and Respect. Emerson Egricks is the author. And he has this whole, his whole idea in the book is that, you know, your call is to love and respect and move toward each other. And he said, couples are always asking him, well, how do I love when she doesn't respect me? How do I do that? Or how do I respect a man that doesn't love me? And he always gives him a wink and says, well, it's up to whoever's most mature to break the cycle, right? And what's he doing? He's putting it back in your, well, so what about you, right? What about you? And, and if we point and go, I'll serve when they serve, we'll never, it'll never happen. We'll start, we'll start to see something happen when all of us accept my call from Jesus is to serve, no matter what anybody else does. But there's no loving God without serving people. Um, listen to the tension of these two things from Jesus in Matthew 25. He, he shows us two really important things. One, that there's a judgment coming. So again, Jesus, not a doormat. He talked about some crazy stuff. But then he says, here's how you carry forth the kingdom and serve, serve God, how to serve me, Jesus says. Um, here's how he puts it. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, and the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Right? He's tying their actions toward other people, toward you know, how they actually responded to him. And then, of course, he, he flips it. And the people who said, we never, we never neglected you. We never neglected you, Jesus. He says, yeah, but when you neglected these people, you neglected me. So Jesus inextricably ties your worship of him with how you treat people and how you serve people. So Stephen didn't do his best work when he gave his amazing speech. He did his best work when he learned to serve like Jesus. Every time he delivered a meal to one of the poor little elderly Greek widows, he was serving Jesus. And no wonder he was so full of the Spirit and was so able to be this powerful leader that he was because he was willing to be weak and uninfluential. And this convicted me even last week. Um, we, uh, we have an elderly friend who's been going through a lot, and I realized I've had her on my list of like people to check in on for, I want to say weeks, probably months. And I, and I just, I've struggled with this. Because it's like, well, she's just there. 
and, and she'll be there next week. And there's all these pressing things and then non-pressing things, right? And so, I mean, we did go visit her this week and I'm like, I'm trying to do this with you of saying, God, help me, help us all to believe that serving the least of our brothers and sisters may be the best worship we could take part in. I, I think we really do need to see that. And like, not just think it, but like, do it, actually. It may be a very crucial component in proclaiming Jesus to a watching world, okay? So a pattern is we serve, that's we all serve. I mean, we've even, as a church, adopted that in our mission, broken people, given grace, serving others. Like that's, let's make it more than a statement. Let's do it. Now a paradigm. Paradigm is calling is greater than capacity, and they're not the same. Stephen is clearly a very capable person, and he gets the task of serving elderly widows their food. Um, and not only that, but like I said, he only does that for a little while and he, and he gets killed. Um, God lets him die young. He wastes all that talent, right? And the truth is the whole story seems to be preparing us to meet someone far less talented because at the end of Acts 7, um, we meet Saul of Tarsus at the very end, right? Who's overseeing his execution, um, and as a reader, you're expecting Stephen to excel and, sign, and shine in the church, and then you have this brief little moment at the end where Saul oversaw his execution, and it turns out the whole rest of the book of Acts is about that guy. It is really alarming when you think about what it would be like to read Acts just straight up. So here's the paradigm we learn. With God, calling is more important than capacity. We see it over and over again. Moses, who isn't a great communicator, is called to communicate. And he asked for help, and God gives it to him, but God was like trying to tell him, you don't even need it. I'll do this through you. Um, David is the last of the brothers that gets you know, brought up before Samuel to be chosen as king, and he's kind of a good-looking guy, turns out, you know? but his brothers looked like men, you know, looked like kings, and he, the person he replaced looked like a king. I think you know, David looked like a male model or something, and they were just like, this guy's going to get beat up. But God said, I look at the heart. You people look on the outside, I look at the heart. We see it in Jesus' disciples, um, in which the inner circle who go on to be the most influential were the fishermen. And this is a strange thing. This is unexpected. There's no way that they were the most prepared and talented out of that group. They were the least. And they're the ones that are always present, and they kind of lead the church. Okay. It's It's like if in Tucson... We were all in here, and there was like a trio of garbage men right there. And God was like, hey, all of you in your master's degrees, thank you. You'll be of service to me, but I'll be entrusting this to the garbage men. That would be a weird, think about that. If that happened in our midst, how many of us would feel like that was a little unfair? Right? God may call one with capacity to something very seemingly small, and that can be, and that can be difficult to accept. I, I recently read a diary of, of Henry Nouwen, who was a, a Catholic priest. And I was going to this retreat center where he had once gone, so I read a diary that he wrote when he was there. And in the diary, he's, he's trying to process his spiritual life. He's sitting with the monks. And one of them kind of goes after him because he, he's talking about all he needs to write his next book and his next lecture. And the monk kind of goes after him and says, for what? For who? For God? You think God needs your book? And he's like, ah, you know, I've worked my whole life for this, right? 
And, uh, and I don't know the whole timeline on this, but, but I, what I do know is the last 10 years of Henry Nouwen's life, um, he gave it up and he went and worked in a community of disabled folks. And somewhere in there, um, so for a decade he did this, and he was the pastor of a community of disabled uh, people, and, and he ended up saying it was, he should have done it a long time ago, basically. He should have done that sooner. And, and truly, God gave him, and one of the things that he shared about it was he had always wanted to see a community that actually lived around the worship of the church, and it was always theoretical, and he was always talking about it, in that community of disabled folks, he actually got it. Because they didn't, they just sat, they sat in the house and they communed around Christ every day. And he finally got the gift he actually wanted the whole time. Um, on the flip side, God could call one with less capacity to serve out of weakness. I mean, that's Saul of Tarsus. Interestingly, we learn about him. Um, he, he was educated, he was, he was a good arguer, but he was weak in person. There's even some kind of tradition that he was kind of like not good looking. I mean, that's interesting. I don't really know. We don't have photos. But he was kind of unimpressive, and he, and he didn't have much in the way of persuasion, persuasive speech. You know, the joke is that he literally bored a man to death, but, you know, it happened. A guy fell out of a window after hours of Paul talking. I've never, it's never been quite that bad with me. But God gave him this long public ministry, and he would go on to teach us things that we are to glory in our weaknesses, because in the areas in which we're weak, God loves to show that he is strong, right? Paul taught us that, um, because he understood it, which is why at a moment like this, I was thinking about two pieces of news that, that became, I became very aware of this weekend, where one, that the Southern Baptist Church is like exploding, right? That's in the news. Um, there's educated, talented, big people all trying to get the same position, and there's tapes out there about, you know, abuses not being dealt with and, and all this stuff. That's in the, and it's rough. I mean, it's, and it's sad because it's everybody, the world knows, right? And it's kind of just hard to watch. And then you get this Jane Marchewski, right? A, a student from Liberty University, and so they've had a rough go last few years themselves, right? But she, her frail, dying thin little body walks onto America's Got Talent and sings her song, right? And then everybody's like, who is, and she tells everybody she's, she's about to die. She's dying of cancer. Nightbird is what she goes by. And then people start digging into who in the world is this, right? Like, who is this person who's about to die, who's trying to win a contest right before she dies, basically? Um, And here's something she wrote. She said, I see mercy in the dusty sunlight that outlines the trees and my mother's crooked hands in the blanket my friend left for me and the harmony of the wind chimes. It's not the mercy I asked for, but it's mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer. Thank you. It's a prayer I don't mean yet, but I'll repeat it until I do. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned. That's not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I'm the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden for me. Even on days when I'm not so sick, sometimes I go lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy and I can't really explain it, but God is in there even now. I've heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough. And it's true. Look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. 
she, she, was, she was probably on the path to be a famous singer. That's what it looks like. And unless God intervenes, she will be famous. She is, right? But just for a brief moment before she dies, like Stephen in Acts. She'll be a blip, right, on our history. And God will, will use that. And maybe he'll inspire someone else through her frail and faltering witness um, as she returns again and again for a little while from vomiting on the bathroom floor to tell us that God is all we need, right? Those are our two big pieces of news. The Southern Baptists are fighting, and Nightbird is saying, just say thank you, even on the bathroom floor. Our pattern as Christians is to serve. God's ministry or paradigm for ministry is that his call is more important than our competency or our gifts. He may call the fearful and unprepared and the dying to lead us. He may call the gifted to obscurity, and he may call the gifted to die. And of course, he can call a gifted person to lead and the lowly person to continue in a quiet life. But no matter what, his call will be to serve. Because servanthood points to a suffering Savior. That's our last thing, our pointer. Paul was there witnessing Stephen's death, and he saw this wisdom and grace, right? He saw the, this wise man speaking gracious words. Um, what did this amazing testimony inspire and change within Paul? I don't think anything. Nothing. Why do I say that? Because the next verse goes on to say, Paul kept on breathing murderous threats and approved of the executions of more Christians. He seemed utterly unmoved by this display of Stephen, right? It didn't shake him out of his viewpoints or whatever. And I think we need to see this for a moment because many of us want to follow Jesus so we can be a part of something great, so we can change the world. We want to see our faithfulness translate into conversions of people or change lives. We want to see results. But that's not how people change. Faithful people don't convince skeptics and change hearts. The Bible doesn't teach that. When you really dig in, it doesn't ever teach that. It says that faith is a gift. It's not a product. God chooses, as Jane wrote, chosen by God. And, and as Paul will teach in his epistles, God chooses and he gives gifts and people receive grace. How did Paul change? It took an absolute miracle. Two chapters later, when it begins to really be all about Paul, in Acts 9, Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus and utterly blinds him. And what this means is this is a moment like, this is like what Moses experienced. Like when he saw God's back and God said, you can't see me and live. It's like Paul had one of those kind of moments with the risen Christ. And it's an absolute miracle. It is crazy. And he reveals his glory and his power. He confronts him with his sin and says, why are you persecuting me, right? Not easy, this grace. But he offers him grace because he says, rise and go to the city. He tells Ananias, I've chosen this instrument. When Ananias says, that guy, he says, this, he is my chosen instrument. And then and only then can Paul look back and understand Stephen, whose execution he oversaw. Only after that miracle. And the only place Stephen's story is recorded is by Paul's travel companion, Luke. So truly, I think Paul tells us his story, in a way. The one who executed him. And, and this same Luke, the disciple of Paul, who's a doctor who turned into a historian, 
also gave a lot of space to Jesus teaching that the greatest will serve in his gospel, which I, I think Paul had some input into as well. See, God blinded and opened Paul's eyes, and then Paul could see the ways that God worked through people like Stephen, and he could tell and witness to people like Luke. So you and I doing God-glorifying things does not save people. Only God does. We, we don't have that power, but it's still vital. I don't want to tell you not to try because it's vital. It becomes a pattern of following Christ that needs to be left as a legacy. It's the way that we just identify with and actually walk with Jesus. It's going beyond words to actual action, going beyond saying the word grace to actually giving the idea and the reality of grace. It points to and retells the story of what Jesus has done for you every time you serve somebody else. I alluded to this earlier, but now I'll read it, where Paul teaches us what he's learned in Philippians 2. 1 through 8. He says this to to us Christians, if there's any encouragement in Christ, which there is, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete by joy, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And at his table, before that death, he says to his disciples, here's how I'm going to serve you. I'm going I'm to break my body like this bread. My, my body will be broken for you. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be poured out like a drink offering on the altar. This is my blood, this wine. Poured out for the forgiveness of many. This is my life for yours. This is what it looks like to show grace. If you believe this, if you'll surrender and be served by Christ, then confess your sins today and come and partake of his grace. Jesus is our miracle. Can you see him? Jesus is our grace giver. Will you feast upon what he serves? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and he served, so will you be his underservant? I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to worship in three ways as a community here. We're going, to, we're going to sing together. We always have giving in the back, and that's something that you can do. And then the Lord's table is going to be open for you. Really, all it takes to, to come and do this is to be willing to be served by Jesus. That's really the prerequisite right there. Are you willing to receive what he gives? And then let him be your pattern and learn to serve from him. So as uh, after I pray, a short period of silence will follow that. It's two minutes for you to just sit before him. I would just encourage you to contemplate how he served you. And then ask Jesus, how can I give that away? 
Not someday when I get when I get things together, when my kids grow up, when my career is done, but like this week. Jesus, how can I serve as you've served me? So I'm going to pray, leave two minutes, and then as Mike uh, comes up and starts to sing, the table will be open, and, and I'll be there to serve on behalf of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I want, to, I want to praise you and thank you for being such a gracious God. You have utterly exhibited something to us that breaks the mold, that changes everything, that doesn't fit in this world, as we look around and see all the brokenness and all the me first kind of stuff going on, your pattern of laying your life down, of, of humbling yourself as a servant is absolutely unique. First of all, we need it. That's, we're sinful. We need a savior. We need to be cleaned and washed and forgiven. And second of all, we need to learn from you We want to take your yoke upon us because you are gentle and lowly in heart. We need rest for our souls, and we also need to learn how to love. So teach us, please. Guide us as we pray. Feed us with what you've served. In Jesus' name.